Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by Brilliant. We always think of moving or making stars as the height of technology only seen in the most fantastic of science fiction civilizations, but as we'll see today, we already have the technology to do it. So today we will be looking at low-tech Kardashev II civilizations, and we have to start by explaining what a Kardashev II civilization is. As channel regulars know, one of the ways we try to hunt for alien civilizations is by the Kardashev Scale, a simple scale of three basic levels. Level 1, or a Kardashev 1 civilization, is one that uses or has ready access to all the power and energy of an entire planet, which in Earth's case is about 200 billion megawatts, in terms of solar energy hitting Earth from our Sun. Though the practical limit of efficiently converting that energy into useful power will be substantially lower, and some definitions put that K1 energy as low as 10 billion megawatts, which was the version Carl Sagan preferred. Needless to say, that can vary a bit from planet to planet, Venus is a little smaller than Earth but closer to the Sun so it gets more sunlight, while Mars is smaller than Earth and further from the Sun and gets much less, but it is generally good to an order of magnitude or so. Kardashev too varies more, as we'll discuss in a bit, but it is the entire output of a star, not just the portion of it hitting a planet, and our Sun's case is 2 billion times as much power as hits Earth. Kardashev 3 is the last official level and is all the power in a galaxy, generally many billions of times what an average star emits, and galaxies vary in size too, not to mention output, but typically fall into a tighter range much like planets do, with things like quasars being major and temporary exceptions. Stars vary by output a lot, and our Sun, in spite of being called a yellow dwarf, is in the top 5% in terms of mass, brightness, and power output. However, the range is far larger, as while our Sun is a dozen times the mass of the smallest stars, and there are stars a couple dozen times more massive than our Sun, they range in power from a ten thousandth the power of our Sun to more than a million times its output. Indeed, the 100 billion dimmest stars in our galaxy are collectively about as bright as the biggest and brightest star in our galaxy, the Pistol Star, which while anomalously bigger than our Sun, 100 times as massive, is fully 10 million times as bright as our Sun, and 100 billion times brighter than the dimmest known red dwarf star, meaning stars vary in mass by as much as a factor of a thousand but brightness and power by a factor of a hundred billion. So the K2 status of a civilization is a pretty vague one, spanning a range far larger than the difference between a desert island nation of one lone castaway and a nation encompassing every single human. Nonetheless, as we will see today, the basic technology for creating a Kardashev II civilization around any star is essentially the same, and as we will also see today, the hardest part of becoming K2 around a given star is just getting there. The term Kardashev II civilization is generally synonymous with what is known as a Dyson Sphere or Dyson Swarm, which is the more preferred term these days for discussing as a plausible future, though K2 and Dyson Swarm are no more synonymous than K2 and High Tech, or either are with a population of billions of billions. They would be expected to overlap a lot, but none of them must. 
What is a Dyson Sphere? Well, in science fiction it sometimes means a big hollow planet built around a star with people living on the inside under perpetual sunlight. In science terms though, and in keeping with what Freeman Dyson described originally, it is not a big hollow sphere, though that can also be done, but rather is envisioned as a small cloud of orbiting objects which collectively use most of that sun's light and thus obscure it in whole or in part. That big hollow planet is what folks tend to think of when the word Dyson Sphere gets used, and indeed that would be very high tech, since such a setup can really only work if you have artificial gravity. The star keeps pulling material inward, and a hollow sphere generates gravity only outside itself, inside everything that gates, so all the oceans, air, and people on the inside would fall right into that star without artificial gravity. Alternatively, a basic Dyson Swarm just assumes quantity rather than quality. If I put a satellite in orbit of the Sun, rather than Earth, and have it collect solar power, that is an element of a Dyson Swarm, I just need to add more and more. You also don't really need to worry about them colliding because while the Dyson Shell idea implies a solid block, a Dyson Swarm has all that volume to work with. The average component might be a thin mirror a millionth of a meter thick, while the depth you have to play with is tens of billions of kilometers thick. A Dyson Swarm cannot ignore collision issues but is much less dense than even air. As a simplified example, if you had 100,000 orbital bands composing your swarm, each a bit further out than the last, stretched from Venus to Mars, they would still be a thousand kilometers apart. You could do that too, have actual bands. That's essentially the notion of a ringworld like we see in Larry Niven's book Ringworld, but to generate gravity it needs to spin on its axis far too fast for any material we have not to be shredded to ribbons, even ultra-strong tensile materials like graphene. A graphene might let you build rotating habitats as big as continents, as we looked at in our episode Continent-Sized Rotating Space Habitats, but ring molds are millions of times bigger. If you're not trying to have any significant gravity on them though, you can't just build a ring of flat panels around a star all connected together. Indeed if the flat thin panels are reflective and thin enough, they can act as a solar sail and just hover over a star, what we call a statite, rather than orbit, or if a bit thicker, do a mixture of solar sail and orbit to produce an abnormally slow orbital period lagging behind a normal satellite, what we call a lagite. This can be a thick band or just a bunch of things orbiting near each other, so long as you keep them evenly spread out and occupying the same orbital path, they won't pull each other together. However, it's basically your low-tech Dyson Swarm. More accurately though, it could be called your early phase Dyson, as it's easy to build and can be modified and added to over time. Easy to build is obviously a relative statement, but not too relative in this case. All you need is basic interplanetary travel and infrastructure, you don't even need advanced automation though that certainly helps. We already produce more than enough aluminum each year alone to wrap the planet in aluminum foil if we wanted to. We presumably wouldn't though, it would be a bit silly, but the hard part of producing aluminum is coming up with the energy for doing it, it's very abundant but very energy intensive to produce, but something a bunch of solar mirrors are good for is producing energy. An aluminum foil mirror at the Earth's distance from the Sun receives over a thousand watts per square meter. A mirror that size would generally mass much less than a kilogram and require about 50 million joules to produce from raw ore, or about half a day of sunlight on that single panel and even less time if you position that mirror a lot closer to the Sun, so you can easily bootstrap up your energy demands and there's more than enough metal available to enshroud an entire star with such thin material. Of course when we start talking about building trillions of space habitats rather than thin foils, raw material becomes more of an issue. 
There's also no complexity to its manufacture, this is just raw quantity and brute force manufacturing, so we are demonstrably capable of building such a star-encompassing structure or cloud of structures right after we produce our first bit of aluminum foil off the moon or an asteroid. And needless to say automation makes this way easier. Space is not terribly kind to objects floating around in it, so you do have wear and tear and have to stay ahead of that, but the amount of power they produce compensates for that pretty well. For context, with modern production we can do a lot more than a square kilometer of foil per worker per year, and each square kilometer represents an additional gigawatt of power output, on par with our largest nuclear and hydropower sources. So the economics of it work out fine if you are producing in space from low gravity objects like asteroids or smaller moons. Uh, This assumes you have some use for all that power, and no, producing foil isn't a use, as we said you're not even using a day's supply of the power you generate to make the thing. Dyson spheres or swarms are always seen as far off in the future, and not just because of the false impression they are high tech. We do not use most of the light that hits the Earth directly, and the Sun produces 2 billion times that, so the assumption is that you need to grow your population by at least a billion times what we have now to need a full Dyson, and probably a good deal more, more like a billion trillion people. It seems like a long way off, though I should note that since we quadrupled our population last century, if we quadrupled every century we would only need 15 centuries to get a billion times more people. We generally assume slower growth in the future, which may or may not be the case, but exponential growth is exponential growth. If you're doing it uninterrupted by resource limitations, it's just a win not if you'd be wanting all that power. We also tend to assume civilizations with that kind of labor force and energy behind them are going to get high tech real quick if they aren't already. If you can field a million times as many scientists because you've got a million times as many people, you probably get a lot of research done. What I want to discuss today though is why you might do all this englobement a good deal sooner than we would tend to expect, and not just here in our solar system either. Before we jump into that though, I feel obliged to point out that K2 does not have to mean a Dyson Swarm. On the high-tech end they might have much better power sources, as we looked at in episodes like Colonizing Black Holes or Antimatter Factories. They also might have something even better like perpetual motion machines or zero-point energy or wormholes that tap into other universes or realities. K2 just means available power, and since it means all the power of a star, you are technically a K2 civilization all in your own right if you just happen to own your typical big spaceship we often see in sci-fi, able to jump up and down between relativistic speeds and a dead halt in mere seconds. Most interstellar empires we see in science fiction don't even have as many people as we'd expect a proper K1 civilization to have, probably around a trillion people, but because most sci-fi writers ignore physics when inconvenient and have no sense of scale, Most of the ships we see fly around in space in sci-fi would need to have an engine quite capable of lighting an entire planet just to do any of the non-fashion-light maneuvers they all routinely pull. This of course is one of the more obvious reasons to want all that power a star emits too, pushing spaceships around. However the easiest Dyson you can build, just all those orbiting mirrors, not only allows you to shove spaceships around but shove your star around too, something we call a Shikata thruster. Interestingly, this is probably going to be priority one of most colonization efforts around other stars, just not any of the early ones. Assuming fast and light travel is not possible, the vast majority of stars we can detect, in all those distant galaxies, will fly over the cosmological event horizon and be lost to us in some billions of years, and take nearly as long to reach. So sending automated probes or colonists out to them at near light speed in order to get them, create a big shikata thruster, and move that star back in our direction, 
may well be the main goal of most colonial efforts. Again, not the only one since there's not much reason to do that in our own galaxy, and we are going to need to spend most of the next million years reaching those. See our episode Fleet of Stars for more discussion of the reasons and methods for doing that including our alternatives to the Shikano Thruster, which in basic form is just a ton of mirrors, gravitationally anchored to a star, bouncing all the light they receive in one direction to result in a net push. Getting to those stars is generally considered our big goal, and having access to all that power of a star expedites that a lot. One of your easiest methods for doing that is something we call a stelazer, which is just a pair of big mirrors deployed into the corona of a star to use that as the lazy medium, generating a massive laser you can shove spaceships around with, or for that matter planets, or for that matter vaporized planets. Each requires different amounts of energy but rely on the same technology, same as moving a small rock as opposed to a giant heap of gravel, and of course more tech always helps. You can move a mountain of gravel by hand, so Neolithic hunter-gatherer tribes could do it, but bulldozers and combustion engines help a lot. This is a key point for today though, you don't have to be high-tech to be K2, even though a high-tech K2 is obviously better. The other key point is that you don't need to be either high-tech or high-population to want to be K2. We have a motivation to start down this path as soon as we can produce power collectors in space for cheaper than we can produce them on Earth. Some colony ship arriving in a new system with a few thousand colonists has a motivation to start producing them the moment they arrive, indeed before they even arrive. High tech allows you to employ sophisticated and efficient methods, but you can get a lot done just by sheer overwhelming application of energy. As we say on the show, if brute force isn't working, you're not using enough of it. And having access to K2 levels of energy lets you engage in brute force projects like terraforming planets, and that includes re-terraforming ours. As we saw in our episode Power Satellites, if we were able to economically start that project up, not only would we never need to build another oil or coal or even uranium-fueled power plant again, but we could very easily strip excess carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere, or even just leave it there, and block a bit of sunlight to adjust the planet's temperature. Also, when things like weather control get on the table, subtle application of energy and very good computer models and computers might make that far easier, but brute force does work. You can nuke a hurricane, but for a bunch of reasons this is probably a bad idea, and has become something of a joke that people laugh at for the wrong reasons. A single nuke, even the biggest we've ever made, doesn't carry the kind of energy a hurricane does and releases that energy with a lot of radioactive material getting scattered around in the process, so building a bigger nuke would do the trick, or using a ton of them, but does a different kind of damage in the process what with all the fallout. That obviously isn't an issue if your power source isn't scattering radiation, and when we're talking about K2 civilizations, their available power is to a hurricane what a hurricane is to a match. Dealing with hurricanes by raw brute force is in the K1 range of hard tasks, not K2. Having that kind of power is one of the many good motivations to shoot for being K1 though, and if you're doing that by putting a ton of power satellites in Earth's orbit, then you just expand that for use in space. You'll need more power but you don't need that power on Earth. Planets cannot be K2, at least not for long, a K2 planet would vaporize itself in short order. You also don't really need K2 power levels to send out spaceships. If you want to send a colony ship as massive as an aircraft carrier to every star in the galaxy and do it at 99% of light speed, that's going to cost you about 10 to 26 joules of energy per spaceship, about a quarter of the sun's output per second, and there's about 400 billion stars in the galaxy, so that's 100 billion seconds or 3,000 years of solar output. 
Given that most of those ships, even hugging light speed, will still need tens of thousands of years to get to most of those stars, 3000 years isn't a very long wait for deploying them all. In practice we would assume we would do it in waves, building fleets from materials around other solar systems, and running them up to cruising speed from power harvested from those other stars. By then, you are likely to have grown in population enough to need a Dyson locally, but then again you might be shipping all your excess population off of those ships too. What would we do with K2 power right now? Or in this upcoming century since we can't do it right now, again we need the space infrastructure and industry force since while we can produce enough aluminum from Earth to englobe our Sun, it would be cost prohibitive at modern launch costs to try. Though once you get that basic power supply in place at a small scale, you could actually use it to lift materials off Earth. See our Upward Bound series for examples of the sorts of megastructures you can use to move megatons of material off Earth if you have the power to run them, which you would at that point. What to do with all that power and in the near future? Well again, not for Earth. We can't even add a billionth of that power down to Earth without torching our planet. Not for spaceships either, we don't have enough people to fill 400 billion colony ships. Transmutation? Well, yes, that is very power intensive, especially with available technology, but we don't really need a lot of heavier elements at the moment, there is plenty around. You can use a K2's power supplies to fuel the building of megastructures and habitats once you run low on low hanging fruit like asteroids and moons, and even planets. But there's enough raw materials to build every single person their own O'Neill cylinder, usually envisioned as housing around a million people just from those asteroids and moons. Of course you don't just build those for people, an O'Neill cylinder makes quite a nice nature preserve, spacious and easy to protect from invasive species, including humans, and building a few million of those just for replicating our various endangered ecologies, giving them some safe place or places, might well be a major goal of ours in centuries to come. Powering giant computers might be one such use too. One type of Dyson or stellar engine is the Matrioska Brain, a multi-layered computer that runs on a star it keeps in its basement, and that is an example of how K2 might pop up quick. You don't absolutely need self-replicating machines to become K2, but it sure helps, and it is easy enough to imagine those getting loose, forming some supermind, and disassembling everything over a few centuries to turn the whole solar system into a newly upgraded brain. For that matter, we always think of population growth in modern contexts, and slowing rather than speeding up, but that can flip very easily. A society that achieves radical life extension can have one heck of a population boom, with few people dying and people still having kids when they're hundreds of years old. However, that's not the only path to that. A civilization might go digital, opting to upload their minds to computers and potentially live at subjectively faster rates, enjoying whole years and mere minutes of objective time, in which case they could grow populations very quickly, and the same for a superintelligent AI or race of cyborgs or robots. That doesn't mean the whole civilization is doing that, but it hardly matters. If you got a group growing faster than another group, it will soon outnumber it and hoard all the cars. If a century from now we upload a few brains, and a year after that they've personally experienced a million years, they are likely to have the numbers to want a K2 civilization just for the power to make and run all the computers they need, and while they might be nice enough to head out to other solar systems to find that power and raw material, they also might tell everyone else to either join up or pound sand. Needless to say, they probably aren't low tech at that point either, unless there is a limit as to how advanced technology can get, and that limit is fairly close ahead. But before we wrap up for the day, I do want to present one other low tech scenario, and that's a no tech scenario. 
We mentioned using automation for building up to K2 in Ahoy, and it hardly needs to be smart automation as these things go to make simple mirrors and panels and microwave transmitters, but it probably doesn't need to be too smart even to build O'Neill cylinders, especially if we're going for more of the ecosystem of self-applicating machines we've discussed before in episodes like Void Ecology. You have whole species of dumb bots who perform just one type of task, much as our own ecosystem does, particularly the micro-ecosystem inside each of us. This could be a machine ecology or some genetically engineered ecology designed for living in a vacuum, or some mix of the two, the distinction is fairly arbitrary anyway at that point. Such being the case, you might grow yourself up to K2 or even K3 by including an interstellar component seeing the galaxy ahead of you, and this might include everything up to growing your habitats, your spaceships, your megastructures, your giant stelazos and transmutation factories, a sort of grand paperclip optimizer but making more useful things. We may well have the capacity to go this route inside the century, by that means or several others. This could also happen on its own if some basic space-based life evolved around some star, and evolved to spread over a solar system rather than a planet. A biological K2 civilization, with no tech, and for that matter, no civilization. The sheer size and scale of space and time can be at odds with our daily experiences, or even counterintuitive, that we can draw bad conclusions by relying on that intuition, and we see that often with topics on this show, especially things like the Kardashev scale and power. This is where math and science help us look at concepts with fresh eyes, and applies to so many things from the wondrous and far out to the mundane and day-to-day. If you want to improve your ability to look at things from this perspective, then I'd recommend the course Scientific Thinking from Brilliant. Brilliant is a problem-solving based website and app with a hands-on approach, with over 60 interactive courses in math, science, and computer science, like their course on scientific thinking, which helps show scientific principles and how valuable they are to have in your problem-solving toolbox. It's a great course to introduce you to Brilliant's fun and thought-provoking approach to learning, and from there you can go on to any of their 60-plus other great courses. If you're looking to improve your own skills in math, science, and computer science, and want to help support our show and have fun while you're doing it, or know someone else who would, you can try Brilliant out for free or get it as a gift for a loved one by going to brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur. So this weekend we have our monthly livestream Q&A on Sunday, December 27th, and then we'll wrap up the year on December 31st with Becoming an Interstellar Species, but we'll head right into the beginning of 2021 with a look at Civilizations at the Beginning of Time. If you want to learn when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.